from the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Now with today's program, here's Jeff. On this edition of the Jeff Nyquist Program, I'm going to talk about the relationship between economics and politics and how that works. I'm going to have a guest. He's going to talk to me about this subject and about what is happening with the U.S. economy. Now, there's some things that need to be said in advance for everybody to understand, sort of as a frame of reference for thinking about economics. A financial crash is more than an economic glitch. And with all the volatile markets and all the things that we've been seeing, the bubbles bursting with real estate and, and whatnot, we know we're in a volatile period. We read about it in the newspaper, the different moves that are made, things happening in China affecting us, things here affecting Europe. Um, but what we really need to know about it politically is that these economic crises, they lead into dangerous political territory. An economic crash can trigger a revolution. Financial distress in the 1780s led to the French Revolution. Financial distress brought the Nazis and Japanese militarists to power before World War II. A financial earthquake can cause a political earthquake. A political earthquake, in turn, can set off revolutions, civil wars, or even a world war. This is what history teaches us. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Sekulow live. That's right. Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang. As always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020. And we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We've seen recently, as the moment of this show's being put on the air, there's been problems on Wall Street. There's been problems with banks. And uh, there's been China has been threatening to dump dollars if, if there's any kind of attempt to correct the trade imbalance here by the U.S. Congress. On August 11th, I'll just read this briefly. This is from the Washington Times. Global Banks Ride to Rescue uh, is the title of the August 11th article. It's uh, by Patrice Hill. Um, it says the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged more than 200 points in morning trading among the spreading cash and credit crunch. But the cash injections comforted investors and, along with the statement of assurance from the Fed, helped to curb market losses. The Dow ended down 31 points at 13,240. 
Markets in Europe and Asia did not fare as well, experiencing losses of 3% to 4%. Central banks in the United States, Europe, Japan, Australia, and Canada initiated their biggest rescue operations since the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, repeatedly injecting tens of billions of dollars in cash into global bond and mortgage markets in an attempt to ease the crisis of confidence. Now, there's this obvious volatility. There's this obvious series of changes. And now if you throw in the problems in the Middle East, the problems with oil, the problems with a possible terror attack on the U.S., and there's talk about there being a a vulnerability here uh, in the summer of uh, 2007, perhaps in the fall, there is a potential for a crash. And we have to think about the kind of political vulnerability we have if we have an economic crisis. In this article by the Washington Times, it said that the Federal Reserve contributing $38 billion through its New York lending window in an unusual statement said it was providing liquidity to ensure the smooth functioning of financial markets because, quote, dislocations in money and credit markets, unquote, are hampering funding efforts of banks and savings and loans. That sounds pretty serious. So I'm going to bring on the program's financial expert, uh, my brother, Greg Nyquist. He happens to be educated in economics, and he's written on economic subjects for Dispatches Magazine and WorldNet Daily Magazine uh, in the past. Uh, Welcome to the show, Greg. It's nice to be here. I'd like to first ask you about this credit crunch. Uh, Is the economic situation stable, unstable? What's what's going on? Well, you know, obviously there's some not-so-good things happening in the credit market. There's a lot of bad credit there. They made a lot of subprime mortgage loans in the last six, seven years, and some of those chickens are coming home to roost. But exactly how bad it is, it's hard to say because there's no statistical measurement of the quality of credit. And we know, we all know about what happened to housing prices in a lot of the housing markets in the country. Uh, we've had people buy a house for and it becomes worth, in a few years, $500,000 or more, $600,000. And now it's worth less than they paid for it, and they're paying off this loan for all this money. And, of course, uh, course, how many people are actually defaulting on their housing loans right now? Well, I don't know. I have any statistics right now, but the latest statistic I came across is about one out of 41 of the subprime mortgages. Okay. We're defaulting. My guess is it's greater now because there's a crisis. Uh-huh. And, and okay, explain to us what is subprime mortgage, what does that mean? Well, it's basically they're lending below prime rates. There's probably variable rates. They're lending to people they shouldn't be lending to. Mm-hmm. These are shaky loans from the beginning. And they've been doing a lot of that lately. They, well, they did a lot of that on the margins. You know, as the market started to fill up and they wanted to keep the real estate market bubble going, they just sort of lowered the requirements for loans and, and did all the subprime lending, uh, variable rates. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's a lot of leveraged debt out there. And now that the price of the houses has gone down, suddenly you have people whose mortgage is, is higher than the value of their home. Now, maybe you could tell us what a bubble is and how it works. Well, it's basically if you have any kind of market, an asset market like the stock market or real estate, a bubble is when the value of of the commodities in that market rises far above the actual fundamental value of the commodities in in the market Mm. so that, you know, houses should probably be at a certain price, and they're twice as much as that. Or stocks should be at a certain price, and they're twice as much. And people are actually making money 
from buying things and then waiting for the thing to increase in value and then selling. And that's where the, most of the money is being made in those markets. Something that happens quite frequently if you have lots of liquidity going into the, uh, the monetary system in terms of credit. It flows into certain areas. It flows into the stock market. It flows into real estate. It doesn't just sort of evenly spread out, but it just flows in these concentrated markets. And it reaches a point where, where even people who aren't very bright suddenly realize that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And it can't, it can't go on, and then it falls back down to the original, the more fundamental values. Now, is that what happened in, with the stock market in the 1920s, just before the Great Depression, and when uh, the stock market went way up and yes, then it crashed? Yes, pretty much. They had been expanding the money supply. Um, there, there had been some economic difficulties after World War I when the economy was adjusting from a war economy to a civilian economy. And uh, the Federal Reserve threw some money into the economy, and it, instead of just being spread out evenly, it all went into the stock market. And then you started getting leveraged debt and all kinds of nasty things going on. Now, it seems like things really were taking off in the 1990s after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, and the stock market went up in the 90s the way it did in the 1920s. That's right. And then, like in 2000, we had a crisis in the stock market. And could you tell us why that didn't turn into another Great Depression? Well, there's two main reasons, or uh, really one reason. Uh, the reason why the Great Depression was so nasty is that they were on a gold standard, and the monetary system was much less flexible. Back in around 31, 32, the money supply shrunk by a third. And the reason why it did so is we're on a gold standard. You cannot have inflation on a gold standard or you'll lose all your gold, basically. And that's what happened. The Federal Reserve had tried to run easy money policies after the crash, and it resulted eventually on a run on gold in the United States. So they tightened up, the money supply uh, shrunk by a third, and you had a very devastating sort of rebound effect from 29 in, in 30 one and 32, where the Great Depression was really, really bad. Mm -hmm. In 2000, they were able to throw money at it, basically. Because we didn't have a gold standard. They could just simply create liquidity by creating credit or, or printing dollars and then easing the problem. Uh, yes, that's right. And it, it's made even easier for the United States. A lot of countries couldn't get away with that. Mm -hmm. But because the dollar is a world currency and because of the fact that uh, countries are so eager to sell stuff to us, we were able to get away with it. And it's very interesting that the dollar is sort of like serves the purpose of what the international gold standard did before World War I, that, uh, that it makes America able to do this that other countries aren't able to do. We're able to inflate our currency without seriously destroying our uh, economies, having serious domestic inflation. Um, is it true that now, when we reacted to the stock market crisis several years ago with this liquidity, that the liquidity then went into real estate? Well, it had been going into real estate earlier. The fact is, since 1987, there's been one crisis after another. Mm -hmm. And there's some indication that there may have been a serious uh, problem in 98. Mm -hmm. And real estate seems to have been the way out. Uh, I guess Fannie Mae and, and those GSE uh, creditors, mortgage lenders, bought up a lot of bad debt. And since they're government, quasi-government institutions, they were able to turn bad debt into good debt because nobody believed that the government would allow those institutions to go out of business. 
And so this created speculation in real estate and drove real estate through the roof. I mean, we're talking in a lot of areas in California, real estate doubled or more than doubled. And now the crisis is, that's occurring now is due because the real estate bubble has been bursting. Is that right? Uh, yes. Um, the stock market went way down, or not way down, but down around 800, the Dow Jones was. And so it, it almost looks like real estate market kind of helped out the stock market when it's going down. And then the stock market has been helping the real estate market as it's going down. But yeah. now the stock market is kind of, maybe it's hit a ceiling. Yeah. And so where else are people going to go now? Could it be that we've reached the end of our rope, or can the government create more liquidity and get us out? Well, they're going to try the liquidity and see how long they can go with that. No one really knows because no one knows how much bad credit is out there. And this is totally, we've never, there's no historical parallels to this. There's never been a fiat currency as the world standard of value before in a situation like this. No, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, Parts of the American economy, they're very strong. We've got great employment going on. Uh, we still have entrepreneurial kinds of things going on uh, in the tech set, all kinds of fantastic stuff's going on over there. It's not all bad news. It's just that since we don't know how much bad credit is out there, we don't know what kind of time bomb we could be sitting on and when that goes off. Now, uh, here's a question that occurs in hearing this, and if I'm understanding you correctly, isn't it much easier to assume bad debts and to, to go forward in this more sloppy way, given the, the kind of policies we've been using, than if we had a recession and we had some pain and we had people retrenching and thinking about whether this or that is really the value that's been attached to it? Well, uh, the reason why you have recessions and depressions is basically to get all those bad decisions, all that bad debt out of your system. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have that, they can accumulate there's there's two basic things that can happen when you have all this easy money. Usually it comes in in forms of credit, and it's going to be invested in something. Mm -hmm. Some of those investments will be good. They'll be, you know, economy transforming. That's really how a dynamic capitalist economy works, is you apply new ideas to capital. But since new ideas are inherently risky, how do you get capital to those new ideas. By having these easy money policies, you make capital very ready so that even dangerous, risky, new idea type schemes can go forward that can transform your economy. But at the same time, you're going to have the dead weight stuff. You're going to have the bad decisions. And historically, the way capitalism works is it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. You have the booms where where people you have all these new new ideas being tried, and then you have the period where you sort of get rid of all the chaff and you keep the wheat. And those are your recessions, those are your depressions, but we've been avoiding that. We don't want to have those tough times. And so by not facing up to the pain, we're allowing bogus notions of, of how to develop the economy to remain in place, sapping the economy of its strength in the long run. And so basically what you're saying is that we don't know how many of these bad ideas are being still supported by the liquidity, and we won't know until something hits the wall. Well, we get rid of some of them through, you know, a corporation is in bad debt. Mm -hmm. they, they take it over and and transfer whatever's left of it to something that, that does more. So we, we've kind of improved the way we sort of get rid of all that chaff, but I don't know how much better we've improved and mm -hmm. how much 
Because as I said, we don't have accurate statistics. Even the GNP statistics, you have to take that stuff with a grain of salt. They can't measure the amount of money out there. They can't measure the amount of wealth that's created. It's just statistical guesswork. I see. Was there a period when we had more accurate economic data? Not really. I mean, uh, there used to be a, a category called M3, which measured very broadly what money is. Mm-hmm. Um, they've taken that away for who knows what reason, probably because that thing's been going up way too much. It would scare a lot of people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in general, statistics, they give you a rough idea, but I wouldn't read too much into them. Now, we have at the moment the dollar being the world currency, and the challenger is the euro, the dollar that, that the United Europe is using over there. Um, what are the chances that the dollar is going to be knocked out as the world's leading currency and the euro is going to come in? It's not impossible. It's hard to imagine that happening without a severe dislocation. And if there's a severe dislocation, America might be in a better shape than, than Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, Europe, it's not really a country. Right. And that's one problem. And they've got some serious problems. I think this crisis we're having right now might be more serious in Europe than it is here. Well, it's interesting you should say that. I read a piece about how the Central European banks, uh, actually, uh, their their liquidity bailout was over $130 billion, and it was more than the September 11th figure. So this, apparently, that's going on now is more serious in Europe for them than 9-11 was here which is, is, is still more serious than what's going on so far. And America's had consistently better growth and more economic dynamism than Europe. Uh, yeah, there's some serious economic problems in, in Europe. Uh, their population is getting older, and they just don't have as many fresh and new ideas as we have over here. Hmm. I mean, really, nobody, no one else does. We're still well above everybody else when it comes to entrepreneurial capitalism. And that's why our currency is so important to the rest of them, and that's why they all want to export to us. Well, that's that's one of the reasons we're a huge economic superpower. I mean, there's some other problems in the fact that uh, manufacturing is going to the third world, and that's leaving a lot of people in the first world who really can't fit into the information economy, the new idea economy. They've got no place to go except service jobs. And those are demeaning, and there could be some serious social consequences as a result of that. Hmm. We've been talking about the dollar. We touched a little bit on how the markets are working. Inflation. Everybody's seeing, of course, gasoline prices have gone up and food prices. We know. We can feel that going to the grocery store have gone up. Um, is there serious inflation in the U.S. economy, and is there going to be more? I mean, you, you mentioned the figures that, that used to basically measure one of the things that causes inflation. Uh, is there hidden inflation, and are we going to suddenly find that the dollar is worth a lot less than it is now? Well, the value of the dollar has been going down in, in recent years, so that's a kind of inflation right there. The inflation rate, the sort of official inflation rate, is, is really measures the price level, um, measures how expensive things that you use dollars to buy are. And inflation, that inflation rate has been going up. This year, in the first quarter of this year, it was four and a half percent and second quarter was around five and a half percent and that's a little bit higher than what it's been in the last 20 years usually it's been in the two to four percent range mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of that has to do with rising energy and food prices mm-hmm. you take the food prices and the energy prices out of the picture and our inflation rates only around two percent mm. 
But a 5% is pretty serious because it basically means every 20 years, price level doubles. Everything is twice as expensive. Well, just thinking about what, what it costs, I, I was looking at cars recently, and I noticed that to buy the, a similar car, it's almost doubled now over what it was 15, 20 years ago. And cars and houses, certainly. What is actually staying the same or not going up that much? We're talking electronics equipment? Uh, well, know. a lot of the technology stuff is actually going down. I mean, the computer I bought uh, back in, in March, they've now come out with a new model that costs the same, that has a larger screen, a much better video card, it's a faster processor, and um, costs the same. Which is really with inflation is less. Mm-hmm. It's uh, two, three hundred dollars less, and I, I think that's pretty much true across the board with uh, with a lot of tech stuff. Mm-hmm. So some things are going up, some things are going down. Uh, with me on the program is Greg Nyquist. Uh, he is an economic analyst. He has written for WorldNet Daily Magazine and Dispatches. Uh, he's currently working with my website, jrnyquist.com. And we're talking about the U.S. economy and what the basic situation is with the U.S. economy. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for women's oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life you're listening to the jeff nyquist radio show okay we're back with my guest greg nyquist my brother who happens to be a writer on economic subjects and um we've been talking about the u.s economy we've had uh, a sort of a bursting of the real estate bubble now and uh, and of course the stock market is is taking a tumble in in recent days uh, greg I, I wanted to talk about different economic Indicators now. Employment is is doing really well, isn't it right now? It seems to be going okay. Um, you yeah. know, obviously, I think most people think it's peaking at this point. So it's peaking. So growth is supposed to slow down by the end of the year. Job creation is supposed to slow down. That we are headed for a recession. But it's interesting. Last year at this time, they were predicting the same thing. They were predicting a recession by the last quarter of 2006 or the first quarter of 2007, and it didn't really happen. Um, do you think that, that we are headed for a recession uh, in the next uh, several months? Well, I would expect some measure of slowing down. Whether it will actually qualify as a recession is hard to say. Uh, there's, just, there's no accurate predictions in, in economics, and the best you can do is make an educated guess. And most of the guesses the economists make turn out to be wrong. Mm-hmm. I saw a recent statistic that uh, the state of California did a poll of uh, California CEOs, what their take on the economy was. And the overwhelming number of these CEOs were negative about the future state of the California economy. And, of course, California is the, the biggest market and the biggest economy in the United States of the various states. Um, can we use indicators like this to to say that there's a high probability we're going to have an economic downturn in the next several months? 
I don't know about high probability, but I, I think the, the more important statistics have to do with, um, you know, how businesses are doing and, and whether they're selling this stuff or whether stuff is uh, not selling, things of that nature. Um, mm-hmm. If the markets are going well, uh, employment will continue going well. When people aren't buying things and things are starting to tighten up, uh, that's when you're going to start seeing a recession. Now, I always thought about this, that economics is really about psychology. Uh, if everybody goes to bed one night believing that their houses are worth, you know, 400000 and they wake up in the morning and they all go, wait a minute, my house isn't worth 400000 it's only worth 200000 So then all of a sudden you have all this wealth that had existed before, the night before, was suddenly seen to be imaginary. All the loans and second mortgages and consumer spending and everything based on that belief is gone overnight. So what you have is a sort of a psychic earthquake. That psychologically, the whole idea of where you we're at in terms of wealth changes. If something like that were to happen in the United States suddenly, some major thing, wouldn't that be the essence of what a financial crisis or a crash would be? Well, if it's an actual uh, crash rather than just uh, creeping inflation, they're going to do everything they can, the uh, you know the Treasury and the Fed, to make sure that there isn't a crash like that. So what happens is basically if everybody wakes up that way, the Fed creates enough money and pumps it out there to make everybody feel like, okay, we're still worth what we used to be. Well, they, they, they dampen things. They make things so, so that they're not so bad. I mean... The value of houses has gone down, but people aren't panicking over that yet because the stock market's done well and mm-hmm. there, there's compensatory things going on in they the economy. They still believe there's something that's growing. They have to believe that there's something that's getting better in order for the, the whole thing to hang together. Well, at least not everything's going bad. They at least have to feel that they're, at the, at the very least, they're, they're keeping their heads above the water. Boy, you really want to be into that thing that everybody's about to think is going to do better, don't you? Because that's the thing that's going to double next. That's the next bubble, isn't it? It could be, yeah. Yeah, whatever that would be. Now, I've read in the international press the real danger to the U.S. economy comes from India and China. These growing Asian economies where you have this, these, these outrageous growth rates and you don't really have a very sound financial system in China and India in place. So you have a lot of irresponsible uh, sort of investing in economic activity so that you, you get bubbles over there, bubbles in China and bubbles in India. And when these things break, the shock waves carry across the Pacific and so you can get a global effect. Uh, just like when the, the Russians had their ruble crisis in 98, there, was, uh, there were markets that were threatened in Brazil and the United States and hedge funds threatened. Uh, do you think that this is really the, the greater danger? Is, is something happening overseas in China or India? Uh, no, I don't, because we've had that before and we weathered that. I mean, we're the strongest economic power. We're the most dangerous economic power. Whatever danger, it's here in America. It's all the bad debt that's here in America. It's really? the hedge funds. It's, it's all that stuff that we don't know about because we can't measure it. We mm-hmm. only can sort of guess that there's something that's not so good under there. It could go tomorrow. It could go next year. It could go three years from now. So it really depends on whether the time bomb is here in the United States. That If there's going to be a global financial meltdown, a catastrophe, it's not going to be China, you're saying. It's not going to be India. It's going to be the U.S., uh, yes, because we're the big player. We were the the keepers of the global currency. And so we're the ultimate stabilizers. Yes, we're the lender of the last resort. 
And yet we're the world's greatest debtor. Well, that goes along with it. That just tells you how powerful we are. <laughs> that the world's greatest debtor is a lender of last resort. That's mind-boggling. That's absolutely mind-boggling that, that we can play this game. Now, I'm just going to ask you a political question related to this. We've got this situation in Iraq. You know, we've got this situation in the Middle East. We've got these, this, this tension, this crisis. It's connected to the price of oil should things go really bad. And, of course, there's been a lot of speculation, talk about leaving Iraq, pulling out, the consequences. Already there's, there's these crazy stories about the Iraqi government really being under Iranian influence and looking to Iran rather than the U.S., even though we're funding everything and our troops are over there. Uh, if the U.S. were to pull out of Iraq, we get, let's say we get a Democrat in the White House. He says, this was my promise to get us out of Iraq. Now we're leaving. We, we, we go, we leave the Middle East completely falls apart at the seams you know you got you got oil at 125 dollars a barrel you've got uh you know all kinds of economic problems around the world because of what's happening in the middle east and u.s credibility as a power is down because the u.s made all these promises they went in there and they didn't stick it out they didn't see it through could this be something that could trigger a, a, an economic crisis in the u.s it's certainly possible. I mean, that would that would hurt us economically a great deal, having energy prices so high. But one of the problems is that uh, there really isn't sort of any anybody waiting in the wings to take over America's place economically. Uh, Europe might want to be able to try to do that, but whether they could pull that off, I'm not quite sure. And Europe is more vulnerable to energy crunches than we are. Well, they're as vulnerable. As well, I mean, they import more energy than we do. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it certainly wouldn't be good for anybody. I, it would really harm the global economy. It could be the death knell of globalism. Now, that's an interesting statement because we've had numerous attempts to bring nations together in giant trade things, and they've always ended badly. The World War One brought the 19th century globalism, equivalent of globalism, to an end. And we had the Great Depression followed World War I after some years, and then we had World War II. Then this new economic system with America at the center of it. Um, do you think globalization is doomed? Uh, yes. The energy prices will eventually catch up to it. And how would energy prices doom it? Now, let's go back over that again. The whole industrial system that, that we have currently is based on cheap energy. Right. You take that cheap energy out of the equation, something else has to replace it. You know, the Roman system, the Roman economic system was based on sort of cheap slave labor, which they got from conquest. And when that stopped, they needed to evolve into something else. And it collapsed before that happened. So two things are going. The fact that we have kind of peaked with the oil production doesn't look like there's much more oil there. Mm -hmm. and new oil, at least. I mean, there's still a lot of oil in the ground, but there's no major new discoveries since right. what they found in the North Sea. And the demand keeps increasing, and so something has to give. And if this whole system is based on cheap energy, it's, it's difficult to imagine it extending over a long period of time. The, um, the dislocations caused by the increasing pressure of, of rising prices of, of energy, uh, you have to think that's going to break the system and bring back a, a more mercantilist-type system where people are looking after their own. People, in other words, man is a tribal animal. There'll be retrenchment in the nation states where each nation is trying to husband its position in the world economy. 
And of course, that would create greater hostility between countries and create trade barriers and, and break sort of this tremendous division of labor we have internationally. And um, since peak oil is either here or it's, it's a few years away, we're talking about something that's just going to happen within the next several years then. Possibly. Uh, it really depends on how much the demand for energy goes up. Because right now, oil production is steady. Uh-huh. You know, we're not having, we're not seeing any drops. The, right. the problem is the rise of demand. Right, and, the, and the, the, we're not having a rise in production. And there still is a lot of oil in the ground. Yeah, oh it's yeah. It's just that we can't, kind of peaked, we, we can't really get that much more out of it. Yeah, it's the speed at which we can pump the oil out of the ground. We can't pump it out any faster, and so we're now having this problem. Now, in this scenario, where does America come out? I mean, does America, because of its special relationship with Canada, which has a lot of energy, is is it going to weather this better than others? And does this mean that a country like Russia, in in league with uh, Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, other oil-producing countries, can then begin to dominate globally? Are we talking about an era in which the energy-producing countries, the energy-producing giants, are going to be the number one countries? looks like what Russia is trying to do, and that's why Russia's economic strategy makes a lot more sense than China's, especially if China's talking about a nuclear option, selling dollars and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's a risky strategy for them, whereas Russia, they're not, they're not really making any risks. This is a pretty good strategy. Um, they're in great position if they can corner the market on oil, which is, seems like what they're trying to do. Yeah, especially cozying up to Saudi Arabia and, and, and working with Venezuela. Well, they're, they're trying to create a new cartel, basically, with themselves at the center of it. And that's a a very good economic strategy for a nation like Russia that really is not very good at building its own stuff. And then there could be the world-transforming strategy of simply going immediately into a a kind of classic war mode where you are saying, okay, economic growth doesn't matter. As long as we have the weapons, we we can kill enough people. We can change the way the world works and end up on top by being violent. Could this be an option? We've got weapons of mass destruction uh, built up in countries like uh, Russia and China, and even Pakistan's a nuclear power now. Um, could the world just suddenly go nuts all at once as a response to an economic contraction, and uh, we just see a, a massive war of mass destruction? Well, that could be an outcome um, if it gets real bad, and it could get real bad. I don't know if it's going to get real bad real soon, but mm-hmm. I would have to think sometime in the next 20, 30 years, it would get really bad. Is more than 6 billion people too many for this planet? Uh, yes. Yeah, that's an interesting... But not in the first world. It's, that's a third world problem. That's a, Right. It's a third world problem. And, of course, when you've got countries like China and India the first and second most populous countries in the world, trying to build up their economies to to compete with the United States, you have this enormous thirst for energy to get into this modernization. And the demand it's placing on energy is part of what is really causing all this. Uh, yes. That is certainly um, one of the reasons why gas prices are higher. China's playing a role in that. Uh, we are playing a role in it, too, because we keep, our demand keeps going up. China's demand is going up, I believe, at a, at a greater rate than even ours. You know, it's very interesting. I, I want to throw this by you. There was an Italian historian uh, named Guglielmo Ferraro. He was uh, speaking and writing more than 100 years ago. And I read one of his essays. It was actually a speech he delivered to Americans. And he was talking about the way the ancient Roman economy worked 
uh, is that you, you had, and their political uh, cycle worked, is you, you'd have three or four generations, each one living better than the one after, each expecting to live better than their parents, seeing how their parents had improved over their grandparents. And that you finally reached a generation, he said, they could only do that by going into debt. And he said that in each of the great Roman revolutions, when this generation, they got to its position by going into debt, that that's when you had a civil war, you had a revolution in Rome, uh, because then, then something had to be cannibalized. Somebody had to be eaten up. So, so somebody had to be wiped out in order to, to correct the situation. And then they could sort of start again. Is it possible that with America's debt cycle, the fact that we keep wanting to live better and better, that this is happening to us? Um, something along those lines. There, there, there's deep divisions in America, but I, I think the more serious problem is we're entering a world where uh, terrorists have access to weapons of mass destruction, mm-hmm. and in that kind of world, that's a totally different ball game. You're not going to have, um, you know, people talk about the Patriot Act, but they don't understand what could be on the horizon mm-hmm. because you can't really have freedom in a world where where crazy people have weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, now that's interesting. I remember back just before 9-11, uh, there was a hearings in the Duma in Russia, and they had an economic analyst who was an advisor to the Kremlin. Her name was Tatyana Karagina. She gave testimony saying that, uh, that shadow forces were about to attack the United States and that because of this attack on the United States, you would be able to just... Uh, wallpaper the you know bathroom stalls with dollars the, the dollar would become worthless overnight and the russian duma passed legislation encouraging russian citizens to hold gold instead of dollars to divest themselves of their dollars it didn't really work out that well but what's interesting is tatiana koragina's prediction was right the u.s was attacked by shadow forces they were attacked by al-qaeda uh, just weeks several weeks after her testimony but somehow the dollar survived now you talk about mass destruction weapons with terrorists. We've been hearing stories about Al-Qaeda having you know, dry nuclear material, dirty bombs. We've even heard stories repeated that uh, Al-Qaeda has actual uh, small nuclear weapons. Uh, there's all kinds of other weapons like biological and chemical weapons uh, that could be unleashed. And there's a real fright that something's going to happen this summer. And the British are afraid too. Uh, if we had a massive terror strike, something with a weapon of mass destruction against a major city, let's say like New York City, where tens of thousands of people were killed, could the panic of that, could that, the psychological earthquake resulting from that, bring down the dollar overnight? It's not impossible. It can happen. It can happen. Uh, it really depends on how... Uh how much the economic morale of the country was affected, whether we could get back to business. Uh, you know, after 9-11, we were back to business pretty quickly, mm-hmm. despite the, the, the immensity of the shock. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if people are afraid to go, to go to work or markets can't seem to get back up and running, um, you can have that. Now, what interests me about the nuclear threat on it, I mean, this is the one I think would be most decisive. If you exploded a couple nuclear bombs in American cities, even if they weren't super big bombs and they only killed a few thousand people in each city, the psychology would be, if I go to work in the city, I could be blown up, so I'm going to stay home. Or maybe we're going to go to the countryside and we're going to remove our, our place of residence. If you get enough people that panic, enough people that say, 
well, we don't want to participate in the economy anymore because we might die. You could actually literally bring down an economy like the U.S. economy that way. Uh, yes, it's possible. It, it just depends on how well the government was able to sort things out. I mean, people don't actually have to go into a city to keep the economy going because there's this thing called the Internet. Now, the problem is the Internet itself is vulnerable. Yeah, now there's been some talk about new vulnerabilities in Internet terrorism. And I've seen some articles. There's concerns about what people can do, what they can get into. Um, what about a concerted attack on the United States that involves all of these elements? Well, and uh, yes, you could get a, a much more devastating strike if you can get the Internet down and do the, the nuclear option or electromagnetic weapons, mm -hmm. which uh, oh, some people yes. think could take down everything, yeah. just take EMP. out the whole infrastructure. Yeah. Some of that data is probably sensitive. Yeah, it would be. Um, I know that the United States military at one time was very vulnerable, and they uh, were late in catching up and correcting a lot of those problems. With me is my guest, uh, Greg Nyquist, my brother. He's an uh, analyst and writer on economic subjects. He's written for World Net Daily Magazine and Dispatches Magazine. And we're talking about the U.S. economy and its vulnerabilities at this present time of volatile markets. And uh, we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. Plugging you into life. We are Live Radio 1020 WIBG. Whether it's Hurley in the morning, Henning in the afternoon, Dr. Jim Dobson in Focus on the Family. South Jersey's fastest growing Christian news talk. Now with more than a million listeners and hits at WIBG 1020. WIBG. 1020 WIBG. Or at WIBG.com. Plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Welcome back. We're talking with my brother, Greg Nyquist, uh, economic analyst, about the economy. To comment on my concerns about financial crisis, the West doesn't seem to understand as yet that an emerging financial crisis isn't merely a financial crisis. We have enemies in Beijing and Moscow, and they've got the old communist lens that they see financial crisis through, and you've got... Um, that totalitarian instinct to exploit a financial crisis in the developed world. And they have long thought about a strategic sequence in which U.S. power is eclipsed. It's a sequence that leads to massive global changes. The Russians and Chinese want to replace America as the world's dominant military and economic power, and they want to transform the global economic system. But the transformation won't be a friendly one. Their game is not to build an inclusive system in which a rising tide lifts all boats. Theirs is a zero-sum game in which their triumph will come at other people's expense. And uh, this is part of my concern with this, is that a weakened America being that we're not just the center of the world economy, we're the center of world security and world peace. Whatever people think about bad American imperialism, the fact is, is that it's our country that keeps a lot of bad countries from running amok and plundering their neighbors. Um, as far as these, these economic changes that uh, you've been talking about, Greg, or economic volat volatility uh, and, and contraction, I asked before how the U.S. would come out. How, how would the U.S. come out if we had uh, a real problem with these energy prices? Is the U.S. positioned to be able to come out ahead of the other countries? And will the U.S. be able to maintain its military power in, in an era of rising uh, energy prices? 
Well, it's it's difficult. They may not be able to come out if they want to continue being a democratic country with elections and democratic rights. But if the social situation deteriorates here in America to such an extreme state that the government has to declare, let's say, martial law, we could see different types of people getting into government. You have a circulation of elites, and basically the military could be running the country, and that could change a lot of a lot of the way things happen here in America. That would probably be for the worst because uh, it might mean that the economy might not function the way it has and we might not have the entrepreneurship that we've got. Well, we could still keep the entrepreneurship because the military would probably be uh, friendly to the economy like they were during World War II. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know how it would all come out, but... Uh, um, you know, if things get really bad, you can see the left put down by force, the military having a much larger role in the government. That won't necessarily be a bad thing mm-hmm. because you strengthen our leadership here in America. So you're saying that this crisis could be so bad that the Constitution could come to an end, our system of elections could come to an end, that we could end up with military despotism, hopefully an enlightened military despotism because the international crisis the destruction of globalization, the fact that nations would begin arming uh, each other against each other and becoming armed camps with terrorists running around with nuclear or biological weapons. We'd have to close the borders. A completely different environment, a security-oriented environment instead of a money-making international, you know, this is what you're talking about. Uh, Yes. Uh, we would be able to transition to that uh, easier than many other countries because we have a big military and we sell a pretty good economy. We wouldn't have to keep completely close down the money-making. We could still have a pretty good economy. It just wouldn't be a globalist economy. And we could uh, put down the left by force. Um, and you think that that realistically could happen? I mean, if, if, if the military took over in the United States and put down the left by force, wouldn't that entail an end of freedom of speech, end of freedom of the press? Uh, yes. Wow, that's, that's a shocking thought, that the end of freedom of the press could occur in the United States. This would, it would take a very serious uh, dislocation, probably a, a major terrorist attack to trigger something like this. Yeah, I remember there was a general that basically made the statement that if we had an attack on this country with nuclear weapons uh, from terrorists, that it would be the end of the Constitution. Which, which created something of a stir when he made the statement. But he said, you know, like, this is, uh, you know, common sense. This is the way things would really work. And, of course, it, we, we all recognize it. And if somehow inevitably we're headed in that direction, our minds certainly aren't uh, reconciled to it. And I could imagine a lot of resistance, not just from people on the left, but people from the libertarian right and uh, and even conservatives being extremely concerned. And And, of course... How would we know that the military, given the way our military elite is educated now, how would we know that they would put down the right instead of the left? I mean, how would we know? Because the opposition would come from the left, first of all. You think so? Uh, Yes. Interesting. I mean, they don't believe that there's any war on terror going on right now. They think it's all a bumper sticker or whatever. Yeah. Um, Something to justify Bush uh, and his so-called cronies uh, enriching themselves or whatever mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. I mean, uh, basically, the, the sort of world we're, we're, we're heading towards, I mean, neither the right nor the left is necessarily going to be at home at it. Right. But the right will have an easier time adjusting to it. Because the right's always accepted certain hard realities and necessities mm-hmm. where the left hasn't. I mean, the left can take... Uh, 
some comfort in the fact that globalism and the whole corporate system will take a serious blow. Mm-hmm. Um, and the right's going to lose some of that, that globalism. The free trade thing's going to go by the way. Um, so they're going to take a hit there, too. Is there a danger of a, of a new kind of totalitarianism rising in the United States? Once you leave the Constitution, there's always that danger. Yeah. See, that's a, I, I, had a, I had an experience I have to relate. I was interviewed on some kind of Christian news program, and uh, he got into this conspiracy thing about Bush being behind 9-11, and then he, he, he made the statement that, uh, that anybody who didn't worship Jesus Christ was worshiping Satan. And uh, it, it, it very much troubled me because it meant that, that you were basically drawing a line saying that everybody that didn't believe, and I would assume believe in Christianity the way he did, was suddenly an enemy. And once you start drawing those lines and once you start using religion or even political ideology to say, they're the devil, we're the good guys, these are fighting words. And if something like this starts to rise up under these conditions, you know, you see Hitler in the 1930s, you see people scapegoating the Jews, the Jews were evil, according to Hitler. Uh, you have people saying that, uh, you know, eat the rich, capitalists are evil. Um, isn't there already in our midst the poison that's going to arise up, whatever it is? It's, it's out there somewhere. Something is going to, people are going to gravitate toward, and it's probably going to be pathological. Well, there are a lot of poisons in the system on the fringes. Um, right now, I don't think the fringes are, are a super huge threat, but they're growing every day. Yeah, they do seem to be growing. And so that's, that's certainly a long-term concern. Well, you know, let me read you. I mean, this is, I'm, I know it's probably from the fringe. People do write to me, and I get this hate mail. And uh, it was kind of interesting, this, this, some of these, anti, the anti-Americanism. And I suppose you could say it's... it's it's left-wing sort of stuff, and I'm just going to find it here. Um, this guy writes, uh, You are a very stupid man. Despite your claimed knowledge of great philosophers who you clearly do not actually understand, you are obsessed with Russia and totally fail to realize that all you attribute to Russia far more applies to the U.S. The KGB was never a patch on the CIA. The Soviet Union never came close to matching U.S. military might. And then he goes on, he says... Uh, you adulate that B-grade movie actor Ronald Reagan who called the Soviet Union the evil empire. Yep, there was heaps wrong with the Soviet Union, which is currently trying to be fixed by Putin. But the real evil empire has always been the Washington Empire. Look in the mirror, you stupid man. It's you, your precious empire in Israel. See, anti-Americanism, anti-Jewish uh, thing. Not the likes of Putin, Chavez, Castro, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, Ahmadinejad, and so on. It is you and your ilk who have killed millions around the world. No one else. And, uh, and then he brings up killing Native Americans and Palestinians and Vietnamese and now Iraqis. And uh, but But is it possible... For this kind of stuff to, you know, I mean, if we have enough turmoil in this country and this stuff comes up, I mean, that that's real violence. Uh, that's true. And uh, that brings up Burke's statement that passions will forge people's fetters. You know, I don't think those kind of people are a threat to take power, but they may force a government to take harder measures. To take our freedom away. Uh, yes. Because these people, too, can, can explode bombs and assassinate people and create a completely insecure environment that can only be secured by putting shackles on everybody. Uh, that's right. Uh, 
it just creates a uh, <laughs> you can't have a civilized community when when large percentage of your people are violent and uh, crazy i mean only 4 or 5% have to be really crazy for you to really have a bad security situation you don't need that many i mean probably in iraq where we have all this horrible violence it's it's a single digit percentage of the population involved in the violence oh, that's right now luckily most people on the left are not prone to violence so that's not a super huge problem. And the, and the people that would take over, um, their experience in being involved with, with governance will tend to make them somewhat more moderate. What we could be heading for would be something closer to what they had under Cromwell in England. And Cromwell tried to be a constitutional ruler. It did not work very well for him. Mm. But they would tr- probably try to have a, a second constitution, would be my guess. They just would have to have some kind of system in place that would allow them to govern in a world that uh, that doesn't have open borders. They can't have open borders and open trade. No, that's right, because it's too too dangerous in the long run. It's, it's very interesting, this whole discussion about the economy. It, it almost seems like what you've been telling us is the inevitability of an economic change due to the uh, peak oil leads us in this direction, and... And, of course, isn't the real danger the lowering of living standards that has to occur in the country and the changes, the economic changes that people don't want to accept and people becoming disgruntled and and by whatever demagogue arising, telling them that there's another way, a way of, of scapegoating, let's say, some other ethnic group or, or some particular ideological group. I mean, isn't that the real danger? Uh, yes, that's a danger, particularly if there is no terrorist attack. Yeah, and uh, what troubles me is our elite. You talk about a new constitution. Our elite is so left-wing in this country. I mean, the the way the colleges have educated people, it, it's so left-wing that that uh, if we go through these changes, what's going to prevent us from becoming a socialist commonwealth? Even with the, if the military has a tradition of sort of standing back and letting politics go, even then, it would seem to me that that. The left, with its dominance of the media and its dominance of the educational infrastructure and the fact that it's trained the cadre, the administrative cadre of business and government in this country, I mean, how would they not ultimately have the power? Well, if, they, if these things happen without, uh, without the necessity of martial law being declared because of terrorist attack, mm-hmm. that's the way it could go. Mm-hmm. But if it's martial law, I see things turning in a military direction and turning towards the right. Hmm. Um, if you need people, if your rulers have to save you from being killed, mm-hmm. people are going to look to the right. The left isn't going to protect them from being killed. So it, it, we, we wouldn't have a military strongman like a Fidel Castro or a Chavez. We'd have more of a, of a Pino, Pinochet know. or Curtis LeMay. Pinochet. Yeah, we'd, have, we'd have something like that. Well, I mean, the left in this country is not militant. They, when they were trying to be militant, they kept blowing themselves up, and it was just an embarrassment. Well, thank you, uh, Greg, for being with us. Uh, Greg Nyquist, he's an economic analyst, has been a writer for WorldNet uh, Daily Magazine and Dispatches Magazine. He writes for my website, uh, jrnyquist.com. Do you have any closing remarks at all about the situation? Well, I I do think that there's a time bomb going ticking under underneath us. I just don't know when that thing's going to go off. It's all that stuff that we don't know about because we can't measure it. We only can sort of guess that there's something that's not so good under there. It could go tomorrow, it could go next year, it could go three years from now. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist. 
WIBG Proactive Local News. When you have to know, you have to know. You've come to the station that gives you local and regional news all the time. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. All around Atlantic City, as you look at our landscape, you see signs of investment in Atlantic City. South Jersey, Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. It's local and regional news when you need it. 1020 WIBG Proactive Local News. Some of our beaches in the northern end have been eaten away. Right now, Rick. South Jersey. Philadelphia area's only Christian station with proactive local news. 1020 WIBG. We've got you covered. Covered. And now once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I got a letter from a reader and someone who listens to the program, and uh, he he wrote to to say that you know uh, what people think today is is that uh, the China threat to crash the dollar by dumping their dollar assets is 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 considered by most people just sort of like a an, an empty threat that they they can't do it because they would uh, create havoc in the global economy and they'd hurt themselves. And uh, the reader wrote, in short, the argument goes, the pain they would suffer economically would outweigh anything they would gain politically. Like you and others have stated in the past, this reflects the thinking by the West and by other leaders in the developed world that economic matters and concerns are the driving force behind all policy decisions. To try and convince those who think this way that such is not the case seems to be an exercise in futility. By the way... He added, your interview with Bukhar and Pompowski was fascinating. One gets an entirely different feel for the way the world is when talking to those who live outside the U.S. It's fascinating and disheartening at the same time. One wonders if perhaps the time is ripe for an outside media service to set up shop in the U.S. providing an alternative outlet for news. Um, Yes, uh, the interesting thing about Bukhar and Pompowski is that you know, very few uh, voices from Eastern Europe or Central Europe were able to reach the United States. So Americans don't really understand what's happened over there. And it's very important that we do, that we understand that, that, that Moscow is a threat, that the, the changes in Eastern Europe have a sinister angle to them. And I'd like to respond to the thing that economics, yeah, it's an important dimension uh, of the human equation, but sadly for the West, it is not the only dimension. And what we call economics in the West is, is more than that. It's a kind of politics in which property rights are protected. And they're protected by the police powers of the state. But the police powers of the state don't have to work that way. They don't necessarily have to protect economics. And it is possible for the world to work in a different way. And it is possible for the world, as we understand it, to change. And that means a new, more violent world, the kind of world that uh, my brother, my guest today, was, was talking about. So with these thoughts, I leave you with, uh, I'm Jeff Nyquist, and um, I hope you'll join the program next week at the same time. We don't know what kind of time bomb we could be sitting on and when that goes off. From the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and from our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, you've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com.